the Financial Times, and to, uh, of course, Jean Pisaniferi, um, our Bruegel's former director, and, uh, of course, the chief of program of uh, Emmanuel Macron, um, uh, uh, who uh, we are very happy to, to have him with us today. Um, we will talk about the future of Europe after the French elections, and uh, the, uh, after the French election, and the way uh, we thought we, we structured that discussion today is that um, uh, uh, I will ask Tony uh, to, to kick it off and give us um, his take about what are going to be the main challenges um, that Europe is faced with um, in the next uh, uh, few years. We shouldn't take more than five to ten minutes. Um, then I will turn to, uh, to Jean uh, to give his views. Then I will also speak a little bit, uh, I guess, and I'm sure there will be uh, some, uh, some points on which I will want to react also and make my own points. Um, and then we will have a little bit of a debate here on the podium, but also, of course, uh, give you a chance to ask your questions and uh, suggest ideas um, to, to, to all three of us. So, so, so perhaps without much further ado, the future of Europe um, is a big topic. Um, has many dimensions, um, but certainly after the French elections, a lot of things look different than they, than they looked before the French elections. So, Tony, what would be your main points? Well, uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I guess my first point would be that it's extremely presumptuous of me to say anything about what the French government and presidential program would be in the presence of uh, uh, Jean. But uh, I, I maybe structure what I'm going to say in, into two parts. One is the initial domestic reaction in France to the election result, and one is the reaction on the wider European stage. The domestic reaction, of course, was one of uh, 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 mostly, I think, tremendous relief at the uh, better-than-expected victory of uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron. And uh, the fact that the, the, the way that uh, Marine Le Pen <coughs> flirted with the idea of... of uh, altering France's place in the uh, monetary unit just just fell apart, fell apart, uh, wasn't convincing at all, and uh, most voters seem to see through that. Um, one has seen, however, uh, uh, a, a, a certain hostility, I think, to, to the, uh, some of the economic reform proposals that have been aired during the campaign by the, uh, by the new president, and I think that needs watching pretty closely. Um, because one, one needs to keep in mind that the first round result in France did show uh, a, a very substantial vote for candidates who, for one end of the spectrum or the other, uh, seemed uh, not only very, very angry with the old political classes, but uh, suspicious of what sort of reforms might be coming their way. On the European stage, I'd, I'd, I'd like to... I'm going to give you a little preview of something I hope to be published next Wednesday, I think, in the paper. Um, I was struck by the contrast between two reactions. One was the almost, almost lyrical, uh, 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 poetic uh, reaction of Sylvie Goulard from the European Parliament, who talked about, at last, France and Europe reconciled, and here, you know, on the, at the Louvre, the the place where the kings of France uh, used to be, uh, in comes this young president to the sound of the uh, European Union anthem. Uh, it was very moving, the way she put it. But one mustn't forget that some uh, 
hundreds of kilometers away in Warsaw, the reaction of the Polish head of state and the Polish government was extremely cool, extremely cool indeed. I mean, frankly, uh, it could hardly have been more frosty. The, uh, uh, the president, Andrzej Duda, who of course comes from the same uh, party, law and justice, as uh, Jarosław Kaczynski and the government, uh, only in the last few days before the second round uh, vote last Sunday, had said, you know, if, if uh, Monsieur Macron wins and he expects Poland to trust France again, he's got a lot of work to do. So that made me think, um, whereas the reaction in Western Europe was overwhelmingly positive and in the EU institutions, overwhelmingly positive, there were pockets of, uh, shall we say, uh, reserve and uh, skepticism. And I think that needs to be kept in mind because one is in some danger, I think, of thinking just because a new impetus may be available now for a, for a healthier Franco-German relationship and an impetus for the kind of strengthening of the Eurozone that everybody wants to see. Uh, that isn't the whole of the story goes as far as the European Union in, in its entirety is concerned. Uh, the risk of, of differences of opinion, uh, indeed quite profound clashes, between largely in Western Europe and some largely in the former communist world. This seems to me a very serious matter, and it won't go away because of uh, Emmanuel's, Macron's uh, victory. That needs to be kept in mind. Uh, I think I'll leave it there because uh, time is short, but just a couple of ideas there. Celebration. <laughs> problems at home, problems in the rest of Europe, right? That's a, a short summary of what you said. Um, well, I think, I think you're obviously right to, to sort of point to, to problems and potential uh, difficulties. Uh, but let me say a few words, perhaps, on the, how I see the significance of, uh, of this election. Um, first of all, um, Macron has broken with a sort of long-standing, I'm, I'm taking the French perspective, has broken with a long-standing attitude of avoiding European issues in a presidential election. Um, and that has been there for a very long time. Last time, uh, perhaps, uh, Europe was present and positively present in a, in a presidential election that was in the, in the 70s. Since then, or perhaps Mitterrand's second uh, election in, in, in 88. And at any rate, it's been a, a, a very long time. Um, the reason being that because both main parties were divided about Europe, they avoided uh, discussing the issue. That was more expedient to avoid uh, speaking about Europe or beyond sort of semi-automatic uh, statements. Uh, and this election was largely about Europe. I mean, the second round definitely was largely about Europe and even the, even the first round. And, and, uh, and, and, and Macron didn't put the European flag in his pocket, as we say in French. Um, so uh, that has a significance. Um, I think he, because of him, because of Le Pen, there is a significance that, uh, I mean, domestically at least, uh, uh, breaks with a, a long-standing tradition. He has a mandate, anyway. 
Um, at the same time, uh, you're right to point out that there are divisions within the country. You're right to point out that being on a campaign trail, he listened to the part of, of France that is uh, not comfortable at all with, with globalization, with European integration, with foreign competition, all that, uh, all that matters. Um, and we saw in France exactly the same divide that we observed uh, in the Brexit vote or in the, uh, in the US election, uh, the divide by uh, education level, the divide by, uh, by location, and the divide which was extremely striking uh, by uh, personal perception about the future. I mean, the, the, the divide between the optimist and the pessimist. Uh, everybody, including controlling for, you know, let, let's sort of take the, uh, for a second, the, the sort of economic standpoint, controlling for all other variables, what in the end continues to matter is a personal perception of uh, whether you're personally optimistic or personally pessimistic about the future. And this has to be addressed. I mean, you, you, you can't just say, I have a mandate from the side of France that is optimist, that uh, you know, feels well in Europe and, and, uh, and, and the world. Um, uh, the France that's pessimistic about the future had a very bad champion, had someone who didn't know to, how to explain how she would leave the Eurozone, uh, you know, started improvising about a dual currency system that, you know, was a recipe for, for, for disaster, and everybody perceived it as a recipe for disaster. Now the question is still, is still there. So I think you should make no mistake about what, what Macron uh, stands for, He's not going to just to speak for the happy France and uh, rejoice and say those are, you know, we are, we are all uh, happy and, and, and friends. He will be, because he's so committed, he also will be, uh, I mean, demanding on, on ways domestically and ways at European level to respond to this, uh, to this fear, to this anger that was so much expressed in the, uh, in, in the electoral campaign. Now, on... Uh, uh, on reforms and answering your, your, your two points. Uh, on reforms, uh, the, you know, the, the domestic response uh, has to solve a sort of paradox. At the same time, there is reluctance uh, to reform. It was expressed. Um, and there is a, a strong camp that uh, essentially uh, expressed fear of change and a preference for the former status quo. And at the same time, we know that the status quo is, is unsustainable, that you're not going to, you know, if, you, if we stay with that level of unemployment, if we stay with this divide between, uh, between the larger cities and, and, and the smaller cities in the countryside, if we stay uh, with uh, problems uh, of competitiveness, et cetera, um, uh, you know, it's, not, it's not politically sustainable. So, so reforms are indispensable, and at the same time, uh, political capital has to be <coughs> invested wisely in reforms that are going to, to deliver because uh, that's, that's essential uh, in order to change the political uh, equation. They, they put it differently, uh, in France, as in other countries, the side uh, that uh, you know, sees that uh, openness, uh, integration are... You know, the problems we, we've got to, to face and they are stand against, they're going to have better champions. Huh? They, had, they, had, uh, you know, they, they had in several countries bad champions, they can have better champions. Uh, so the, the challenge is really, and I think the challenge for all of us, is to 
redefine the economic, uh, economic openness, redefine the open society and the open economy in a way that is politically sustainable. And I think that's a domestic challenge and that's a European challenge. Um, so the, the answer to you, you, your question is really uh, invest political capital wisely in, in reforms that are going to deliver nationally and, uh, at, and at European level. Now, on, on what you said about, uh, about the attitude in some part of, of Europe, um, yes, we, we observe that. Um, I think there are differences of situation, uh, there are differences of preferences, there are also differences in, in values. And at some point, we have to raise the point, you know, what are the, what are the fundamental values uh, the, the EU is built on? And, uh, and if we have differences about that, uh, I think we have a serious problems, uh, serious problem to face, because Europe is not a sort of cooperative of interest. Uh, it also built on values, and I think the fact that Macron got a mandate by campaigning on Europe, that was a significance also. That was because he was campaigning not to say just it's in our interest. It's also repeatedly said it is our values. It is our it's, it's what our continent brings to the world. And if, if some people consider that this is not their values, the values they, they stand for, I mean, we have, we have a political problem in Europe and we have to recognize that. Okay, um, I think this was uh, a good start, a lot of food, a lot of food for, for thought already. P perhaps let me talk about um, three points that, of course, figured very significantly in, in, in this debate um, and that are more on the economic side. So one is uh, the reform of France uh, itself, which uh, I think was very prominent in, in the debate. And uh, Emmanuel Macron, of course, has put forward a very strong program. I think uh, there's really two, two issues that are interesting here. One is about um, the shift in, in public finance and uh, in, in, in the structure of public finance. Um, if I read the program correctly, um, the idea is to uh, reduce um, the size of the state. So currently the size is at 56%, uh, government expenditure is at 56%. The idea is to overall come to savings of up to 60 billion in the next five years, while at the same time increasing investment very significantly up to 50,000. So we are talking, uh, 50 billion. So we are talking here about a very significant shift in the structure of public finance uh, of, of France. Uh, which I think will create a lot of um, uh, interesting uh, and, and complicated debates. Now, I think perhaps the one point where I, I guess I would sort of um, um, put a question, and I think both of you referred to this, is this uh, country-side-city uh, uh, divide, um, which is sort of the regional-urban divide that has been very visible in the, in the British uh, uh, Brexit vote, um, but also uh, very visible uh, in the support for Marine Le Pen that was not in Paris, but on the countryside. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that what Brexit was about was also a vote about rebalancing between London and the countryside. Mm -hmm. And um, paradoxically, even though the UK overall will lose from Brexit, there will be some rebalancing from, from London to the countryside in the sense that London will do significantly worse uh, than the countryside will do worse. So there's some, some, some 
you know, the relative gap is actually actually falling, even though it's a negative for everybody, to my mind. But it's the, the gap is the gap is falling, and I, I guess in in, in France, my, my question would be, uh, what kind of regional policies um, on regional uh, uh, community policies we can think of that would be uh, supportive to to employment uh, on the countryside. Uh, not just to employment, but also to really to social cohesion, feeling a feeling of inclusiveness also, quite frankly. Because it's not just about money. It's really about feeling to be included, feeling to participate in society. I think it's a major question um, that uh, uh, has probably relatively little to do with the entire European uh, agenda, but it's really an agenda that's very much a domestic policy agenda in France and that I think is of absolutely uh, fundamental importance. Um, I guess then I come to uh, to the uh, to the eurozone. Uh, um, can we can we already discuss? Sure, we, we can we, discuss one by one if you wish. Um, yeah, why not? Would be, yeah, please. Yeah, perhaps. sure. Uh, okay, let me let me say something on public finances because they are. I mean, it's probably our mistake, but there, there has been a lot of confusion about this uh, public finance strategy. Uh, they definitely we share the observation that public finance uh, public spending is too high. Uh, in, in France, compared to the, uh, you know, what it delivers. Uh, it is structurally higher than in other countries, in many other countries, because we have <coughs> a fully public pension system, we have a, a fully public healthcare system, we have a fully public education yeah. system. All that means sure. that, you know, some of the roles that are fulfilled by the private sector are fulfilled by the public sector in France. That means higher spending, and this, uh, you know, this is not, I mean, you can, you can have all sorts of debate uh, about the, the relative merits of, of both systems, but sort of that's part of the, um, you know, the, of the social contract as it is. So, uh, but uh, efficiency has to be improved definitely. Uh, there are layers of public administration, and that adds to to public spending. And there has been a tendency to use public spending as a substitute for some better functioning markets. I mean, beat for. Uh, housing market or for, for labor market, etc. So, definitely, uh, the goal is uh, I mean the, the, the objective, the target is to reduce public spending significantly um, uh, by 60 billion, so mm -hmm. three percentage point of, of GDP. Not, I'm not speaking of the cyclical dimension. The cyclical so, dimension would add mm -hmm. to, to that, but I'm speaking of the structural reduction in, in public spending about three percentage point of GDP. <coughs> now, that's for the, um, uh, the the end year, I mean, at the end of the term, at the end of the term, en route for to to a, to a, to a lower uh, spending level, but the sort of intermediate target is 60 billion reduction. Now we are starting from a situation, as we all know, of extremely low interest rate, mm -hmm. um, and our our perception, our, our view, is that this is not something permanent, but that's something that may last for, for some time. And even though uh, interest rates are now higher than they were a year ago, they're still extremely low uh, in real terms compared to, uh, to, 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 to growth. So it's a, it's a moment where you would wish to use this window to invest, and to invest including to reduce public spending structurally. So to have an approach of public spending that's not just, you know, uh, sort of trying to contain, but trying to restructure 
attempting to restructure, and that implies investment. That implies digital investment. That implies investment in the restructuring of the health sector. This implies investment in in, in training so that people are better prepared, and you spend less on on labor market uh, program, on passive labor market policies, etc. So that's what I, I meant. And the 50 billion is not a permanent reshuffling of public spending and reallocation wow. to investment. That's the total of what's going to be spent on investment over the, the term. Okay? Ah, okay. So that's the strategy. Okay. Now, I, we may, may go on, back to the point, but maybe Tony will want to react. Um, yeah, just briefly. I mean, first of all, I hope I didn't sound too negative in my opening remarks, because <laughs> after all, let's, let's, let's be honest, if you can't feel positive about an election result like this, when are you ever going to feel positive <laughs> about anything in Europe? So, no, I am. I am. Of course, I, uh, I want to look on the bright side. Uh, very brief, two thoughts. One, how long will the Macron honeymoon last? I mean, if you look right. at previous uh, presidents uh, after they got elected, you know, since Chirac, at least, the honeymoon seems to get short, a bit shorter each time. And it was very short in the case of... Francois Hollande. So I, I, I worry a bit there. Um, it seems to me that the, the reform program has to start quite soon, given the relatively favorable backdrop, the monetary policy backdrop of the ECB and the sure. general economic headwinds and so on. Sure. The second point is I'm, I, I've heard some talk that the new president might, uh, might try to ram through some of these reforms, uh, bypassing the National Assembly. Uh, by doing something by decree. I mean, obviously, you don't, one, one can't be sure about that until we know the composition of the uh, lower house of parliament. But uh, this was done a little bit during the Hollande presidency, as I'm sure you'll all remember. That worries me a little bit. I'm, you know, I, I think legitimacy depends on doing things the way people are, are used to. But, you know, that may, it may not turn out that way, of course. Okay, let me perhaps go back to well, your regional, previous point, the regional yeah, dimension. Well, if you look, at, there was a very interesting, uh, very good map of the French yes. uh, outcome in the FT uh, yes. the day after the election, okay. where you see basically two things. You see the north-east-south-west divide. Mm -hmm. uh, north-east voted more for Le Pen, south-west voted more, more for Macron, which is exactly the map of the sort of traditional manufacturing, uh, the Rust Belt, <coughs> uh, let's use the, the mm -hmm. US image, versus a new growth, uh, in, you know, sort of uh, um, Lorraine versus Toulouse, right? right. Uh, and uh, so that's very, very clear. And then the second thing you're seeing is the, uh, that the, the larger cities uh, was overwhelmingly Paris. voted for, for, for Macron, and, and the smaller city and part of the country, the countryside is not you know, even, but, but in smaller cities, many that see no future and voted for Le Pen because they don't see any future for themselves. And I think that's exactly what we saw in the US or in the UK, that's basically the same. So, so it's a problem to, to all of us, it's a, the inclusiveness in an economy of agglomeration that puts such, such a premium on agglomeration, on skilled people, you know, I mean, the syndrome in France is like, like everywhere. You, you, you're getting a university degree, you leave your, 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 small, your small town, you, you're joining uh, a vibrant uh, city, uh, and, and people who are left out, they're, they're lost, and they feel you know, that uh, they have no future. Now, the answer to that, I mean, we have some, but it's limited. Uh, the answer to that, in part, it's tax policy. 
to a tax policy that you know some, somehow redresses that. I mean, that's a reform of the housing tax that uh, is on the program. Part of it is uh, more important is ma making sure everybody's got access to education, the basic public services in the same way, and that's far from being the case. You know, the, the chances of upward mobility depending on, on where you, you're, you're born are not the same. So at least ensuring that individually it does not affect your uh, upward mobility. Part of it is the functioning of the housing market. Part of it is, uh, uh, but part of it is obviously the digitalization. I mean, the access to, to um, uh, high-speed uh, uh, internet, uh, mobility policies for mobility. So, so there are policies, and those policies have to be implemented. Now, are these policies going to be sufficient? I think that's a big challenge for all of us. Mm. On the briefly on the honeymoon, uh, let's let's uh, assume there will be no honeymoon. Uh, that's uh, safer. Uh, the reason that would make me more optimistic is the clarity of what has been said during the campaign. Because very often in France, you had people who campaigned uh, on one <coughs> side and governed on the other side. Huh? So they said, uh, you know, I'm going to distribute, and they they they, they, they came to power and started taxing. And that's not the kind of thing that uh, you know, uh, is a very good start. And uh, you, you basically immediately burn a lot of political capital, and rightly so. And I think on this, ca on this uh, case, I think uh, Macron put forward the reform in the campaign. So uh, people already oppose. People already warn that they're going to be uh, you know, uh, opponents. But at least there is clarity. Um, so that's uh, the thing. On the decree laws, well, uh, it's not, I mean, you know, we're a parliamentary democracy. So there is a procedure that makes it possible for parliament to give a mandate to government to uh, pass uh, what we call ordonnance, sort of decrees, um, on a specified uh, reforms or you know, topics. And then they have to be approved by parliament afterwards. Okay? Uh, so it's a sort of, I mean, the, the, what, what it limits is the right of amendment of parliament on the, the decrees, but obviously it's a parliamentary procedure and has been used repeatedly uh, throughout the, the uh, I mean, recent times, history of, uh, of recent times. So, so it's not something that, uh, and it's not something certainly that prevents discussing and consulting on, on the content of those decrees. So, um, you know, it's, when you want to go relatively quickly and introduce a package of reform, um, that's something that uh, is usable and has been used. Okay, per perhaps we can move uh, to the uh, European discussion, because now we talked a lot about France, which I think is very important, because France is, of course, a major <clears throat> part of Europe. <clears throat> but let's also talk a bit about the European uh, uh, dimension of, of the program. Um, I think one uh, interesting dimension, uh, I mean, there are many interesting dimensions, but, but one which is probably less controversial is the one uh, about, uh, about creating agencies to protect uh, European companies from foreign investment out of security concerns. I think this is a debate that is ongoing. The United States has already an institution called CFIUS um, that um, allows um, uh, the United States uh, government to uh, prohibit a foreign uh, takeover of a company if vital security interests um, 
are concerned. We do not have anything comparable at the European level. Some countries have it, and I do think that sort of moving forward on that uh, in a joint manner, if designed well, uh, certainly, uh, certainly makes sense. There's also some adjustment on trade policies that is demanded, which I think will be controversially discussed. Um, and, uh, of course, there was one line which I, I found a bit surprising, which was this uh, buying your Europe uh, uh, line, so, so public procurement, uh, uh, a certain percentage, if I understand correctly, a certain percentage of public procurement uh, should go to uh, companies from Europe, um, which I think will, will create some, some debate, but probably it's just, just the reality that uh, is, is there anyway. Now, I think the most... Um, the most interesting and the most controversial part of his program um, is, of course, um, the, uh, the Eurozone uh, discussion and the proposal to uh, create um, uh, a Eurozone budget <coughs> uh, with a Euro Area fin Finance Minister and a Euro Area Parliament with the aim to be able to invest more than currently. Um, uh, that's the quote from, from the, from the uh, program. Now, uh, we've already seen, you refer to Poland, but we've already, of course, seen uh, very negative reactions uh, from the country that, that I know best. And I think uh, the reactions, to, to some extent, I have to say I was a bit surprised by these reactions because basically this is very general, what is in there. So, so I, th I think it's not very clearly spelled out. And certainly in the program, there's no mentioning of, of euro bonds, but everybody in Germany seemed to already think this is, this is the start of, um, uh, of Eurobonds euro bonds in Europe and was already preemptively saying, even though nobody apparently said it, preemptively saying we don't want it, which I think uh, was, was a bad way of, of starting, uh, starting uh, that, that new relation. Uh, but, but that's where we are. Um, and and I, I think this will be one of the big and the major debates um, uh, that will define certainly um, the presidency of Emmanuel Macron also because he has campaigned so much uh, on, on this European topic. Now, I think there's lots of questions um, what, the, what this budget uh, should do, how it should uh, be organized, what it should achieve. There's lots of challenges. Um, I think it's clear that um, it's very difficult to think of a, a, a size of a budget that would be so significant that it would solve the kind of regional problems that we discussed initially in France. So I think this is not sort of, I don't think many people would think that the Eurozone budget will be an instrument to solve regional, major regional divergences in the member states of, uh, uh, of, the, of the Eurozone. But I think people do think about this as an insurance mechanism for, for large shocks. Uh, people have views on this about what could be done uh, to, to, uh, to bolster investment. And the most controversial part would be certainly how, how this instrument would be used for debt management in case uh, things, things go really bad in, 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 in some states. And there's the sort of how this interacts with the European stability mechanism, I think is certainly one of the big, uh, one of the big questions. I think all of this will need to be discussed and so far isn't spelled out. I'm not sure whether uh, Jean now wants to spell it out. I, I guess there's still a lot of um, uh, uh, thinking also ongoing on, on the details of, of what can be proposed. But certainly I would be um, curious to, to hear also Tony, yeah. your reaction and, and Jean, your reaction on that topic. Uh, my first thought is that these ideas about some, some uh, even if limited, 
uh, Eurozone budget finance minister um, and uh, Eurozone parliament. I mean, they, they've been kicking around quite a long time and <coughs> never really got anywhere at all. And I, I could be wrong, but I didn't get the feeling that in the Macron program, these were really uh, central proposals that he was, 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 was really intent on pushing forward at the earliest opportunity uh, with, with Germany and others. But I could be wrong. Um, uh, the question, of course, is, is, is whether uh, the <coughs> German government put together after the Bundestag uh, election in September uh, will we'll look on <coughs> proposals like this with, with favour. And uh, as Guntram suggested, I mean, I wouldn't say there's kind of unanimous scepticism, I mean, but, but uh, uh, I, it does seem to me that... Uh, uh, there is a, 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 a general uh, sense that we have to see whether the reform process is taking off in France before we uh, consider, not before we consider, perhaps before we actually do things. Um, it might make a difference uh, uh, if the uh, uh, Social Democrats don't do well in the Bundestag elections and it, play some sort of minor role in yet another grand coalition or, or, in, or even in opposition. Um, and looking at the recent Land elections in uh, Saarland and Schleswig-Holstein and what may well happen in Nordrhein-Westfalen, I think you, 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 you've got to say that the chances of, a, of, a, of, the, of the SPD uh, uh, being in a position where they could uh, mould a more favourable German coalition attitude towards some of these proposals that were in the Macron programme. Um, you know, it doesn't at the moment that doesn't look too too likely. But you know, we're still what um, four months from the election, so we we'll have to wait and see. Okay, perhaps I should say that uh, you know, this is a moment to uh, advertise Bruegel research. <laughs> Because men, basically what we're going to discuss has been covered extensively, including the very first one you mentioned, this uh, um, uh, oversight of uh, foreign investment in Europe, which uh, was outlined in a paper by uh, Nicolas Véron and Lars Henry Koller back in 2008, 2009. Uh, the idea is very much the, the same, is to say you know, at the open level um, and, and not... Uh, there, there, there's so much, let's say, there's so much capital ready to be invested that this question of uh, attitude of government versus vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, sorry, not versus, vis-a-vis -vis foreign investment is bound to, you know, arise at, uh, at some point. Let's have a framework in place at European level that would be, would be safer. Uh, on, uh, on the Eurozone. Um, well, on the Eurozone, there might be a translation problem. I, I checked my French-German uh, dictionary and, you know, the translation for budget uh, doesn't seem to be eurobonds in it. Huh? No, <laughs> exactly. So uh, I don't understand. There is something going wrong with the with the translation. Uh, now, seriously, um, I think you know you said there might be you know, uh, and and there might be reactions that are uh, you know reserved, negative vis-à-vis -vis some proposal. I don't think we need to agree on, on everything. We need a serious conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, can we be happy with 
with, the, with the fact that we, the Eurozone is still there, <laughs> we can be happy. With the way it works, with the way some of the problems have been addressed, <coughs> with the way we do contingency <coughs> planning with respect to what can happen, uh, be it uh, another type of uh, country-specific crisis, be it how we manage the next recession, um, be it uh, the sort of overall balance uh, of, uh, of activity and the flow of savings and, and investment. Uh, can we be happy? I don't think we can be very proud of, uh, of, the, of the outcome, right? Um, can we be happy that there are still uh, uh, banking problems around? Where is the U.S. Uh, address its banking problems back in 2009? No. So I think we need sort of a serious discussion, not on what's feasible immediately on what's a sort of easy harvest of things on which we agree. Uh, what is needed is a serious discussion on what are the remaining shortcomings and what are the options. And, you know, <coughs> there can be disagreements, uh, there can be d different processes. But the, the, in the past, when we built the euro, it was not that we spontaneously agreed on, you know, what had to be done. It was that there was a genuine discussion on what are the conditions for going forward. And I think what has lacked in recent years is this kind of discussion. So there has been a lot of you know, uh, crisis management, decision taken at the last minute uh, just uh, before uh, something really bad could, could, could happen. But we have lacked this, this discussion. The Commission has put forward some ideas. Think tanks have put forward uh, many ideas. Uh, you know, those are, need to be, to be taken on board and, and needs to, you know, I think uh, everybody needs to understand better what's, what the preference of the others and what are uh, the red lines. I mean, speaking on the French side, you know, the French government have been saying for 25 years that we need an economic government. Yeah. Mm -hmm. huh? uh, does it uh, mean something <coughs> clear to people in this room who are probably better informed than many other people? Uh, no, and that's our fault because French government have used a sort of language in lieu of serious proposal. And I think that's what we should uh, end. We need, we need to have much more serious, uh, much more precise discussion. And that may mean disagreement, but disagreement can be solved if you're serious about the discussion. If, if I could just come back to this point about Eurobonds. I mean, of course, it wasn't in the... Uh, electoral program, Mr. Macron, but, but it, it's possible that what some people saw was an interview that he gave. I mean, uh, certainly I can recall the one in the FT. I think it was in 2015, and oh, he talked in rather general terms about about well, of course, in a in a in a currency union, you have to have some sort of uh, ability of the of the stronger better off areas to, to assist the less well off areas. That's not necessarily eurobonds, but, euro but it's not, it's not, you know, it doesn't say eurobonds, but it may, possibly that sowed a, a seed in the way people thought about uh, this subject. Okay, perhaps I open, open up and get mm -hmm. some questions. Um, I think you've heard a lot about uh, France, about um, uh, Europe. Um, I think there will be many, many questions. So let me take always three, if that's okay for you. So the, the gentleman here, the lady there, and the lady there. So I take the center block first. Centrist questions, please. Thank you. Thomas Lawrenson from the, is on? Can you hear me? Yeah. Thomas Lawrenson from the Danish newspaper Politiken. I'd like to pick it up on what you were just talking about on the Eurozone. 
reforms to put the question more straight. Uh, what will Mr. Macron, what will President Macron be needing from uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel when he goes to Berlin? What kind of flexibility? He'll pass to your colleague, your neighbor. Hi, I'm, I'm Heidi Jensen from Jyllandsposten, also Denmark. Um, <laughs> you, you seem to imply that well, you talked about the EU also being a union of values. Uh, you almost seem to imply that um, some countries shouldn't be in the union uh, if they didn't share those values. Uh, could you just uh, expand on that, perhaps? Thank you. Oh. Okay, so with the lady in front, yeah. Uh, good afternoon, my name is Leana Wissole. I work for the European Commission on Migration and Home Affairs. Uh, Mr. Pisaniferi, you talked about openness. Uh, I wanted to ask um, <coughs> what do you think Emmanuel Macron is going to do about openness of borders in the terms of the state of emergency and, um, and so on. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, well, let me, let me answer the first question first by saying that, you know, we're perfectly conscious that uh, the agenda starts at home with uh, solving homegrown problems with domestic policies. I mean, there is no attitude of uh, telling neighbors or telling partners uh, that they should be solving our problems. Uh, it's uh, simple, but has to be said. Um, what uh, I said about this conversation is that uh, you know, again, uh, France and Germany, for the reason we know that they are, they have different attitudes, that they have a sort of historical, they had a historical role, but also because they have quite different attitudes towards a number of problems, uh, have the responsibility of addressing them and, and mapping out uh, the agenda. So I think that's uh, what what needed. Uh, now. This discussion, France is just out of an electoral campaign. Germany uh, starts an electoral campaign. Um, they, these are, there is a sort of you know, small disconnect between the two in terms of the, of the timing. I think uh, the discussion after the, uh, the German electoral campaign is over, you have two governments in place. Uh, time should not be lost, but uh, you know, the conditions for, for a serious discussion to take place uh, need to be need to be there. You need to know, obviously, with whom you're going to to speak. What is the position of the of the government? And you know, if it needs, if it requires some some patience, uh, so be it. I mean, it's not, uh, but but has to be uh, has to take place uh, when when conditions are, are are there. On on the countries, uh, on the values. I just said, you know, the obvious, that we have a charter of fundamental uh, rights, that we have values, that, uh, you know, we stand for, as Europeans in the, the world, for the freedom of expression, for university freedom, uh, for uh, attitudes towards minor minorities, all sorts of minorities. Those are part of our core values. And I think we have to be serious about the, these values because you, you, you're not going even to tell your own citizen that Europe means something if you're telling them, you know, Europe is just about interest. If you're telling them, them Europe is just about interest, you're sending a message um, in terms of you know, democracy, in terms of what, uh, what we, we think we are in this world, that's a very negative message. So I think, I think we have a responsibility vis-a-vis -vis ourselves, but also vis-a-vis -vis our citizens uh, to, to stand for values. And uh, if we disagree, uh, about fundamental values. I mean, this has to be this has to be said, and this has to be uh, you know 
discussed. I mean, discussed. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying you know, countries have no, uh, it is not the, the place to be within the EU, but I'm saying that you know, it, it's, it's, it's not either or. I mean, it's, uh, it, it has to be part of the discussion. Um, finally, on, uh, uh, on openness and uh, um, the, I th if I understood correctly, you, you spoke about the sort of the security and the, um, well, we, there was this debate, with, you know, with uh, Mrs. Le Pen wanted to sort of close border and saying security is about closing border, which is completely absurd because you're not going to ensure security by, uh, by putting, you know, uh, border guards uh, every five kilometers and uh, you, know, you don't have any, enough border guards. I mean, security, um, and this is possible with the Schengen system, has to be strengthened, obviously, they, they, but that's, that's compatible and we can make it compatible with, uh, with uh, the mobility of people and without uh, the, the sort of closing of borders. And I don't think in terms of efficiency, uh, the solution of closing border is a better one. Um, just on this point about values, uh, I, I, I find the whole discussion of this extremely disturbing, actually. I, I think it carries the potential to be very, very divisive. Uh, if it were simply a case of here are the EU's democratic principles and values, and here's somebody not respecting those principles and values, then, yes, we could all see where we stand. The trouble is there are grey areas. I mean, looked at from mm. Prague or Bratislava or Bucharest or Budapest mm. or Warsaw, it doesn't look quite that straightforward. It looks as if there are certain issues about what kind of society we are, what kind of civilization we stand for. I'm not trying to defend mm. a lot of what the leaders of those countries do and say. Certainly not, you know, this silly phrase, illiberal democracy and threatening the Central European God, no, not defending any of that. But I'm saying that you, you can't isolate uh, democratic principles of the op open society, I think, from other issues that are of great concern to the societies in that part of Europe. And the, 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 the danger of this evolving into a, you know, Syria A and Syria B type of view is, is, is definitely there. And I, I don't think that would be good. Right. I, uh, sorry, just to react to that, I do, I do agree that we have to recognize that histories are not, uh, recent histories are not the same, that there can be different attitudes, but are, I'm just saying that there is a core <coughs> of fundamental values we should uh, all uh, you know, uh, accept and consider part of the sort of DNA of the, of the EU. And actually it is part of the DNA because it is in the treaty. <coughs> Exactly. The trouble is it all gets infected with party politics, as we see every yeah, time the European People's Party meets. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, so let me, let me take a few more questions. So I, I see that, that André has a question, then the gentleman there, and then the gentleman all the way in the back. Uh, a question about flexi-security. Um, I'm delighted that... Uh, 
the new president is endorsing uh, this, uh, this idea, the Scandinavian model. Uh, I think that is indeed uh, much welcome. But I want to raise an issue about the sequencing. Uh, is there a danger and how to avoid this danger? I mean, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, how to avoid the danger that uh, what would be enacted during the summer in the manner that was discussed before would be the flexibility part and that the security uh, will take much, much longer. And therefore that we are going to go for not a balanced uh, approach of, and he has been very clear in, in, in the campaign that he wants both. And I think the flexi security is indeed uh, a balance between, between the two. But uh, as we know, the, the security is not straightforward. It's not legislating uh, a change in the, uh, in the labor code. It's much more complicated. It also involves money, and it will involve reform, including of the uh, education system. So how can one avoid uh, this sequencing problem and you know, doing, the the, doing the security much, much later and getting a lot of problem for that? There. <clears throat> Thank you, Christopher Stramka, Polish Press Agency. Uh, one more question about the va uh, values. Do you think that the uh, European Union has uh, sufficient tools to protect uh, to protect its uh, its values? Because we've been in uh, sufficient tools. Whether the European Union has can sufficient you, can tools. Can you speak up a bit? Yeah, do you think that the European Union has sufficient tools to protect its uh, values? Because we've been in discussions, for instance, about the Poland in the rule of law procedure uh, for a while, uh, but it seems that uh, for the Polish authority, uh, it, do uh, it, uh, it doesn't mean uh, uh, adult. So do you think that we need uh, another, uh, maybe, uh, tools, legal tools to, to protect uh, values of the European Union? Thank you. Okay. Then there's the gentleman all the way in the back. Rory McInnes Gibbons, Durham University. Um, the country, the country, have had enough of academics. I just wanted to quote one of the leading um, engineers of Brexit. I just wanted to know. I suppose a question directly addressed to Jean, and I'm sure you've you've covered some of it in a, in a few of your answers. But how does Macron avoid, to, I don't want to use the term pejoratively, but being too much of a think tank. Like, how is he going to relate to, say, the workers of Whirlpool or the individuals who do not profit from the system at the moment? And how is he going to avoid this kind of populist surge that could or could not envelop him? I don't want to be too negative here, but I just wanted to say, how do we change the attitude to academics and think tanks more generally? All right. Okay, these are very... Diverse questions. Very diverse, say, questions. very diverse questions. But um, I mean, Tony, yeah. perhaps you want to go first, or this time, or yeah. on, on I, of them, or? I was rather hoping I could listen to Jean flex security. Okay, let me take it. Uh, well, first of all, what's a sort of well, let, let's take a step back and what's a, what's the goal? No? Um, the, the 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 sort of Danish flex security model. Is an inspiration, but at the same time, there is there is more to it nowadays. What's what's in it nowadays is that the economy is transforming, in that uh, the sort of traditional 
labor contract-based uh, flex security is not a full answer to the problem of today. The problem of today is that the, 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 the borders uh, between independent uh, and dependent work uh, are, are being blurred, mm -hmm. uh, that lots of people move from being uh, wage earners to becoming independent and vice versa, or both at the same time. Uh, that we have, you have very short uh, contract. I mean, you know, we the, the, the protections. The, the, I think the, the goal should, today should be to build protection for the gig economy, uh, and uh, that means more flexibility, more, 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 more freedom, more initiative. But at the same time, uh, you know, protection that are better suited to protecting all people in activity. So uh, our system. And that the case in Bismarckian systems in general is, is based on silos. So you have the silo of wage earners, you have the silo of public employees, and you have the silo of independent, uh, independent people. And they have different systems for, uh, for, for protection, for pension, for, you know. The thing is that if, and I think it's both happening, but it's also desirable, uh, if the society is evolving in the direction of having less silo, more, more mobility across sector, more mobility across uh, different um, uh, status, uh, then you have to rethink social protection. And that it means it needs to be more individualized. It needs to be more centered on, on the individual and uh, uh, the individual as he or she moves from one sector to another. It has to be much more, much more portable and much more universal. But I think that uh, that the goal. and that the inspiration be behind the, the reform of the unemployment uh, insurance system that is going to be universal, become universal, and the inspiration uh, behind the reform of the pension system, uh, ending the fact that your pension is calculated based on different principles depending on the, where you are, and with a lot of actually inequality that you know if you. If you change uh, sector at one point of your career or another point of your career, it changes. Uh, or if you go in one direction or the other direction, it changes almost at random you know, the benefits you're going to get when you're, you're a pensioner. Uh, so that, so that, those are very fundamental uh, reforms. And they go, you know, they, it's a sort of a, a system that needs to be rebuilt. And again, we can take inspiration for the 20, from the 20th century, the better 20th century social protection system, but also to, we need to think about the, the 21st century uh, protection. Now, the sequencing, um, some of these reforms take time. Pension takes time. Takes time because uh, uh, introducing such a comprehensive reforms, you need to work out you know, all the implication, not only for broad categories, for, for almost at individual level to understand who are going to be uh, potential winners, potential losers, how to address that, etc., how to sort of organize, organize a convergence towards new rule, etc. So that's bound to take time. Now, uh, on unemployment insurance, I think we can go much quicker uh, so that you, you address at the same time uh, the, the flexibility dimension and the, uh, and the protection dimension. Uh, that's that, uh, that, uh, the sort of uh, sequencing we, we, we have in mind. Uh, but I agree, I take your point. I mean, that in general, that uh, you know, it's not, uh, I mean, you can, you know, as always, you can use political capital to, to push uh, reforms that are, are, are not popular uh, because 
they are important and they will get delivered in the, in, in the medium term. But at the same time, you have to take care of the, what the perception of your agenda and mm. the perception of Macron's agenda in part of the, of the population is certainly negative. I mean, they, they feel it as a, as a destruction of traditional protection, not as much as a rebuilding of new protection. So for them, it's very important to give the signal that it's not, it's not a sort of you know, traditional liberalization agenda and, and, and uh, which, uh, which is based on, on, on dismantling protections, building also new protections that are more effective. Perhaps, yes, perhaps on that. Perhaps let me just add on the on the flex security aspect uh, uh, two, two considerations. I think the first is that uh, when you change a system, a protection system, I think it's typically good to do it in an upswing and not in the downswing. Because if you do it in the downswing, uh, you lose the protection and you have not yet built the, uh, uh, the, the new security legs. And I think the good and the, the, the good moment... You're speaking of employment protection, especially. Especially of labor protection, employment protection. And I think the good moment in France is that this is in an upswing. Uh, and so in an upswing, uh, uh, it doesn't, uh, I mean, it doesn't feed into uh, unemployment because there's new jobs being created. Um, that's perhaps the first observation. And the second observation is I think that this kind of flexicurity flex uh, model and the way Jean has described it, I think very much captures... Um, the modern reality of labor markets. And I have to say, when I see what, what labor in the UK is now proposing, uh, labor market reforms that look very much like the 17 and 80 reform, 80s reforms. And even if I listen, if I may, even if I listen to, to Martin Schulz, who, who talks about uh, undoing some of the Hartz reforms, instead of talking yeah. more about the new elements, the flex security elements, yeah. how to deal with the digital economy, I think they're, they're, I was quite worried by both yeah. developments. And I do think that uh, um, the, the right approach is to, to recognize the new, the new reality of the labor market, um, yeah. which I think Jean, Jean is doing. Um, no, those are very good points. Um, to move on, the question about uh, does the European Union have the tools to protect its values? Well, um, I, on, I, I guess what we're really talking about here is how far do you go, how much pressure do you put on a, uh, a, a government that is uh, pursuing what, what one regards as objectionable policies or policies that are in contravention of EU values? Well, I, I was recently in Berlin, and I, I talked about this with some members of the Bundestag, and I didn't hear one voice say Germany should support threats against Poland. I mean, it's close to unthinkable in the same way that one can't imagine Germany taking a, an actively negative uh, or, or, or in terms of real material was against Israel. You just can't do it. Uh, there's no appetite for it. Yes, of course, one can voice some criticisms, but... <coughs> Actual, you know, some Article 7 or something like this. I just don't see that happening. Um, one can recall that, uh, largely thanks to uh, Jacques Chirac in uh, late 1999, early 2000, there was an attempt to isolate Austria um, uh, after the uh, inclusion of the Freedom Party and the coalition government in Vienna. And, I mean, the reaction of Austrian society to this was, who the hell are these people to tell us what we... Should, how should we should form our government. I mean, even people who hadn't voted for the Freedom Party. But, but if I may, I mean, I had recently a chat with a few senior uh, Austrians who were complaining bitterly <coughs> that the EU was tough on them, but is now not tough on Poland. Well, so, there you go. So, so unequal treatment, that, that's what they thought. Absolutely. 
Okay. Um, well, do you want to take the one on the on the sort of academic um, and how to how to connect to people or? <laughs> well, it's, it's a question to you, right? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not in an academic, academic capacity here. <laughs> okay. <So> no. <laughs> the, the, the thought, I mean, you referred to this, uh, I mean, moment in the, in the campaign where, where Macron was, uh, you know, engaged angry workers about... Uh, their job being actually, actually outsourced or delocalized to, to Poland, actually. Um, and it's always you know, important, I mean, to, for, for politicians to be confronted to, to reality, to, to, to anger, to despair. Um, and what he told them is, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to say, here is a solution, I'm going to uh, prohibit this. Uh, uh, delocalization, or I'm going to invent uh, a new a new company that's going to take over. I'm not going to um, um, nationalize the company so that the state is starting is going to start producing uh, dryers. Uh, so you know, speaking the truth uh, is, is important, uh, and I think that was a moment when, in the in the debate, it was recognized that he was. Uh, neither pandering to sort of you know people demanding solution for for themselves without you know he was not a demagogue and uh, at the same time he was not indifferent and he engaged with them and he spent hours with them discussing and you know that's that is a sort of formative moment for for a future president that uh, uh, you're not going to forget what happened at the time and uh, you know, the type of solution we all know. They're not, uh, they're not ready-made. Uh, they're not things you can just bring and say, telling people, here's a solution to your problem. I mean, it's a matter of, of economic development. It's a matter of skills. It's a matter of uh, you know, competitiveness uh, of, of various locations. Uh, so you, you've got to go back to the sort of policy drawing board, but being informed by the, the social reality you've seen. I wonder whether this has also got something to do with pre presidential image uh, and behavior in France. I mean, one of the things that undermined the Sarkozy presidency and the Hollande presidency early on was uh, the, the sense the public got that there were certain kind of quirks or shortcomings or, or, or errors in personal behavior. That, and that kind of damaged, I think, the, the, uh, the, the, the effort to, to sell policies to the public. Okay, let me take a few more questions. So I have uh, Gregory, you, and I think you were first. So Gregory. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a question, a question for Jean. Um, I understand that you don't want to, to give too much detail on the French position about the Euro governance, but you talked about red lines, and it appears that we all know about what, what the German red line is, so Eurobonds. But what will be the French red line in, in your view at the moment? Is it uh, the restructuring uh, mechanism? Is it the zero risk weight for, for, for sovereign exposure for banks? What, what, can you already tell us a bit more about what will be the French red lines? Thank you. It's Donald Ricketts from Fleischmann Hillard. I just wanted to go back on something Guntram spoke about earlier vis-a-vis uh, -vis the urban... Uh, rural divide, 
and something which also connects up with the values point we were just discussing, which is the upcoming negotiations on the multi-annual financial framework. Because essentially that goes to the heart of that question when you think about rural policy, what happens to the common agricultural policy, but equally cohesion funding. Mm. And we're talking about whatever it is, 13.5%, which may not be there in the future, we don't know, net 7 8% of the budget. And the question of whether that will be filled, if it won't. Um, and Tony, you were referring to the fact that there is no prospect of threats coming from Berlin. But there is also very open talk of contingency that the payments, cohesion payments, will be contingent on compliance with solidarity, European norms, mm -hmm. country-specific recommendations. So how do we navigate what is an extremely challenging question which puts in the crosshairs the urban-rural divide, but also current <coughs> tensions between different views of European values? Mm -hmm. uh, Kurt Geisert, Association of European uh, SMEs. I have a question for both speakers. Do you think that the pro-European direction of President Macron will lead to an attitude to try to keep the United Kingdom and the European Union together as closely as possible, for example, by one way of a customs union or so? Thank you. Okay. Shall we take perhaps one or two more yeah. questions and then we... Let's, let me take two or three more questions and then we, we close the questions. So, so uh, we have the gentleman there in the back, then the gentleman here. So there in the back, uh, uh, Bryn. Hello, uh, my name is Silas Tanif. I work with the Bulgarian newspaper Capital. Uh, during the campaign, there was a lot of talk about uh, social dumping and fiscal dumping. Uh, I just wonder what this will take and uh, what will be the, the, the practical um, actions of the, new, of the new French president. Uh, is it a, a new uh, t type of actions like uh, the directive for the posted workers, or we'll, take, uh, we'll try something else? Thank you very mm -hmm. much. Thank you. So then, uh, I'm here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I should, should group them. Markus Preis, AID, German TV. Um, I'd like you uh, to you to be more specific on the Eurozone, uh, Eurozone budget, sorry. Um, <laughs> could you um, just give us a first a dimension? What are we talking about? Are we talking about a billion a year or 25? Second, uh, how, where does the money come from? Is it contribution from the Eurozone countries or is it a European tax? I don't know. And third, um, can you tell us what can be funded out of a Eurozone budget that cannot be funded by national governments or from the EU budget? Thank you. Very concrete and practical questions. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think there was a gentleman here. And is there a last uh, question by someone that I could take? So then you, you have you. the last uh, question. My name is Jutaro Kaneko, Japan Center for International uh -huh. Finance. I'd like to ask Mr. Psaniferi on uh, French future position on banking union project. Ah. As an analogy to Mr. Macron's uh, pro-EU stance, uh, can we estimate that uh, France will be uh, supportive for risk sharing, uh, including uh, EDIS uh, common scheme for deposit insurance scheme? Thank you very much. All right, so the, the easy questions at the end, John. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Yeah, let me perhaps uh, group the questions on the, on the Eurozone at the end. Uh, so, on, um, first on the, on the EU budget. Um, that was how... <laughs> no, no, I just tried to compute. It was 14 years ago that with André Sapir, uh, under the, the, the leadership of André Sapir, I participated in a report that said the EU budget is a, is a relic, historical relic and still is. Huh? Um, so there is something quite fundamental going on with Brexit. Uh, because the UK has been such a, a significant participant in the discussion in the EU budget. Not always for the better, I would say. <laughs> because we're, UK introduced this uh, principle of juste retour, which is a sort of a narrow angle to look at the, the budget. And basically, has, you know, everybody has adopted it. And they were a net contributor, which is also... And they were a net contributor. So, so, so there, is a, there is a question with, you know, what are the consequences of Brexit, of this new reality, for the way we, we consider the EU budget? And I think that's a discussion that should not be missed. Last time uh, for the multilateral, uh, multiannual framework, uh, the discussion interfered, the discussion that uh, was expected to take place interfered with the debate on the Lisbon Treaty. And this discussion did not, did not take place. Now, I think it should take place um, because, you know, we're, we're speaking of a changing economy. We're speaking of a, of a changing geography of the EU where, you know, all that at some point requires being translated in, into budget priorities. If we don't, we're making a joke of having a budget that uh, does not correspond to the needs of today and just, you know, embodies the... Uh, the EU economy of the 80s, huh? because that's basically what it is at present. So, so I think we shouldn't miss this, uh, this opportunity. Uh, second, on, um, on Macron and, and, and Brexit, I'm surprised this uh, question came up so late. <laughs> <in the discussion. laughs> uh, well, um, I mean, the, you know, as we're in a phase of the discussion on Brexit, uh, which is a sort of very intensively uh, dominated by the calculation of interest on both sides. Okay. Uh, everybody has his or her own responsibility vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, his or her country in defending uh, national interest. They are, the 27 are unanimous on some red lines. Uh, let's uh, use uh, the word. And I don't think Macron will depart from this, uh, this consensus of the, the 27. Uh, now, longer term, we should think on also uh, you know, making sure that the partnership that will be eventually be, be built uh, is something that's beneficial or at least does not destroy too much prosperity on both sides. And I think that's a sort of longer term view we need to take. But at present, we're very much in a, in a discussion uh, which uh, uh, there is a sort of zero-sum game dimension and that inevitably uh, you know, puts each and every one in a, in a certain corner, and actually to the 27 in the same corner. Uh, on, on social dumping, uh, posted labor, essentially. Posted labor, the, the principle uh, of it, uh, I think, makes more sense than the way it is implemented. It has been implemented in a way that, um, um, you know, 
does not ensure that someone employed uh, as a posted worker actually is a posted worker, first of all. Uh, that it's not a sort of way to circumvent uh, the uh, employment of people mm -hmm. who are sort of permanent residents, they're not, not posted. Mm -hmm. And second, that uh, he or she is employed uh, actually um, at a level corresponding to uh, the skill le level and uh, ways um, within the framework of labor laws that are the labor laws of the country. So a lot is about implementation. If we're not able to ensure proper implementation, the complaints about unfair uh, social competition will remain, will grow, and eventually will destroy uh, the mobility of people. So I think it's a, it's a serious matter. We have to take it seriously because you cannot tell people, you know, that's the rules, but the rules are not really applied, and, but you, you, on your side, you have to apply to, to abide by the rules. That's just not, not sustainable. Um, do you want to react to that well, before we move perhaps to, just move on? To, to add, I mean, we, we had a piece with... Um, uh, Clemens Fust um, of the IFO Institute, Agnès Benassi uh, of the Council of uh, French mm -hmm. Council of Economic Advisors, and Nassau uh, OCU, in which we very much emphasized this this point about uh, non-compliance with the rules, and you know how to improve that compliance. Uh, that compliance with the rules uh, is is actually there, and I think really that's a significant part of the problem, and I think there are modern tools of dealing with quite a bit of that. I mean that includes. Um, uh, the issues uh, around, uh, uh, you know, how, how do you ensure that the reporting uh, is actually transparent, uh, which you can do a lot with just modern electronic means instead of having mm -hmm. old-fashioned paper versions of, you know, the, your, your, your uh, uh, um, yeah. uh, permit to, to work and so on. So I think a lot can be done uh, within the existing legal framework with better implementation, and I, I would agree with Jean that um, if that doesn't happen, I think the pressure to limit labor mobility uh, is, that was a major factor in the UK, of course, but that pressure is going to be in the very core of the EU and it's going to increase very significantly. So I think addressing that certainly, certainly is a major issue. Perhaps let me also say one point on, on Brexit, um, uh, perhaps just to sort of complement the way, the way I would, uh, would see that. Um, I think part of the toughness of the reaction on both sides is related to the insecurity of each side in their own position. So Theresa May had to take a very tough line because she very much depended on uh, uh, keeping the majority in, uh, in the House of Commons. And the EU, I think, in some extent, has taken on some dimensions very tough positions um, because it, it is fearing about its internal unity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, in a sense, what Emmanuel Macron changes in this is that the EU can be a little bit more confident about um, its own future. It's not that yeah. we have all, the, all countries at the, at the door wanting to leave the European Union. Mm -hmm. um, and I think after the parliamentary election in the UK, the British government may also feel a little bit more secure so that perhaps we may end up with um, uh, you know, this very antagonistic zero-sum game that we are discussing currently gradually being softened and you know, starting to focus also on the more forward-looking part, which is the future relation. But Tony, perhaps you want to also say something on Brexit? Then? Um, yeah, I'd, first of all, on the EU budget, I'd like to strongly uh, endorse everything Jean said. I mean, this is at the heart of the EU's future, really, the fact that you have a budget completely skewed in the wrong directions 
I mean, it, where is the spending on internal security, external border security, <coughs> business innovation? I mean, it's it's hardly to be seen, and it's. Uh, but of course, this 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 issue is red hot. You know, a, a real radical restructuring of the EU budget is terribly terribly difficult to do because, as time has passed, it's turned into this standoff between net contributors and net beneficiaries. And again, this blends into what I was saying earlier about the risk of, of divisions uh, appearing, uh, with, with geographical divisions appearing within the EU, because, because to the extent that you squeeze uh, funds for countries that have been benefiting from regional aid and so on, uh, you know, this is, this is going to antagonize them a lot. On Brexit and, and the specific question of could some eventual deal involve customs union, I mean, the, well, the first thing is you'd have to have a British government that actually asked for that. And right now, it doesn't look like, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, I'm not sure they, maybe they, maybe they hide their sophisticated knowledge of the subject, but at the moment, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't look like they completely understand what's involved. So um, could, I, I, I think, Guntram makes a very good point about, you know, the, the, the risk that you would see some domino effect from very, I mean, this doesn't look like this is going to happen at all. Therefore, a, a, a more pragmatic, enlightened approach could evolve over time. But um, uh, yeah, you may well see a reshuffle of the British government as well after the election. And one or two figures who've, who've, who've um, uh, um, you know, achieved fame for all the wrong reasons. Uh, might not be in that government. All right. Sean, did you want to... Uh, right. Uh, no, something on the... Just a word on the posted labor. Uh, because what's at stake is a single market. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. I, and what's at stake is, a, you know, sort of very concrete issues of efficiency. I recently spoke to uh, Airbus people. And they told me when they had problem with this uh, A380s uh, like about 10 years ago, you know, um, there was a sort of misunderstanding between the German and the French side and the, on cables and you know, that. They had 2,000 German people coming over to Toulouse to fix the problem. Right. And that was, that was essential for them. That's, that's how they fix the problem. They move the German uh, labor force, I mean, they, you know, the, the workers, I mean, the, the engineers, they move all of them to Toulouse to work for, I don't know, six months there and to fix the problem. And you're not going to manage an integrated economy if you start putting uh, brakes everywhere. So it's, it's essential that we have a proper functioning, that it's not abused, mm. but that it, it's kept. Huh? Uh, on, the, on the Eurozone, the, so the red lines, I have, um, um, I have three uh, red lines, complacency, uh, <laughs> inaction, and uh, dogmatism. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Excellent. <laughs> no, that's uh, no. What I mean, you know, again, we need to start not from instruments, and and that's also an answer to what you said about banking union. We need to to start from the functions. What's what's needed? What you know? What are what are the issues we've got to solve? There is an issue of uh, of investment. There is an issue of stabilisation. There is an issue of risk. Uh, management, huh? and, and you know it's not it's not complicated. We just have to think about what can happen, huh? because the ECB is not going to be there uh, yeah. for forever with uh, just uh, throwing throwing money at problems. I mean they are 
you know, when, how do we deal with the next recession? How we deal, do we deal with a, a particular uh, you know, issue uh, arising in a particular country? And uh, how do we deal with the, uh, uh, the, the sort of the executive uh, dimension? I think it's, uh, it's Nicolas Veron who spoke of a, who wrote about the executive deficit when everybody was saying there is a democratic, democratic deficit. He said also there is an executive deficit in the, uh, in the Eurozone. So I think we've got to start not from the instruments on which you, know, you can immediately disagree, but we have to start about the, the problem. Then the ozone budget can be part of the, of, the, of, the, of the toolkit. Now, what exactly it is, what role it fulfills, depends on the balance between the way you, you, a, a budget, which in a way can be substituted. I mean, in stabilization, there is substitution between what you do at national level, what you do at eurozone level. Mm. In terms of risk management, there is substitution between what you do through uh, you know, uh, providing assistance and what you, you do through mitigating, uh, reducing the risk in the first place. So those are issues on which you got to start from, again, I mean, a, a, an assessment, Serious a diagnosis, damage. an anticipation of what can go wrong, uh, and then outline solutions. So I'm sure we at Bruegel, we will contribute to that debate, continue to contribute to that debate. Um, and uh, provide some ideas and some food for thought of what are the key issues that, that need to be discussed um, and need to be get discussed. And there I would totally agree with Jean that need to be discussed seriously. Um, I mean, we need to have a serious debate about this that is not just a dogmatic debate, but a serious debate. Um, I think time is over, so please join me in, uh, in thanking both Tony and, and Jean for their contribution today to this Financial Times, Brügel, Second Economic Forum. Thank you. Thank you.